Thanks for coming to Sunday School today. Uh, this is the third Sunday in a row that we're talking about grief and loss. Who's been here all three Sundays? All right, one of the other ones. Two? Well, this is like the third one now. Okay, great, perfect. Um, so, <laughs> so we're going to talk about grief and loss, and um, the, uh, what Bimney and Lori have gone through is just our various um, interactions in our own lives with it and what we've learned from it, the journeys. Uh, I'm going to talk today a little bit about my own story and then mirror that with the grander story of scripture and narrative and what's going on within the, the biblical text um, and then kind of bring that back home after that. So let me open up with prayer and then we'll kind of just kind of jump into all this. So Father God, creator of all things, sustainer, we thank you for today, for the new sunrise, for your mercies anew, for the beauty of your creation, and for the fellowship of the saints. And we ask, fill us anew with your spirit, your presence. Infuse us with wisdom and perspective today of the heavenly realms, Lord God, to see the way that you see and to walk in your ways to the glory of your name. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, um, so I'm going to go in between a lot of questions. Um, and some of these will just be kind of open group questions since it's, it's a good enough size for that. And some of it I'll actually have you break up with each other so everybody gets a voice. Um, I'm sorry I don't have notes printed off for everybody, but that's okay. Uh, the common thread. What is more common amongst us is not victory but defeat. It's not gain, it's loss. And how we grieve these losses matters. And this is going to be the thing that sets us all up. Because a lot of times I think in life, when we talk about grief and loss, we think of it as like a segmented piece. Because a lot of times we go to death. And I'm going to go to death today. But what, if we started actually sharing our stories with each other, the common things that we share more often would be an ability to relate to, yes, I've lost friends. Yes, I've lost status. Yes, I've lost jobs. I've moved and there's been loss because of that. There's been things that we've lost and therefore things that we have to grieve because of that. And that is far more prevalent and, and prominent and common that we have in our lives than what our victories are or what our gains are or our successes in life. And the world sets us up to say we have to go for successes and we're measured by our successes. And, you know, it's what do you do? And we don't, you know, like if you ask that question to the person who's lost their job, there's a different meaning for it. Um, my dad, he... he he early retired, and I've never totally gotten a straight answer. <laughs> he early retired when we were in high school, but there was some transitions in his job, and then he was able to fiscally say, okay, well, I'm going to stay at home because my mom was working too, and I'm going to invest in my, my boys. But for him, it ended up that repeated question of he was judged by what he did. Like that first question of when you meet somebody, oh, okay, so what do you do? And it's this, I'm expecting you to do job, to do work, to have status, and when you don't, then it's this, oh, like, I don't really know how to talk about that. But that's kind of this cultural facade more often than not because we have to build trust to really be able to go to some of those deeper places. But what is actually uniting about all of us would be to sit around a fire pit um, with a beverage in our hand and just say, okay, so where's the broken pieces of our lives? And that's why at downtown we, we have the whole mantra of blessed, broken, and given. Because that brokenness is something that is so much more prevalent and common amongst us that it then actually, if we let ourselves go there, it becomes this, oh, so the uniting factor amongst us is not how great we all are and how many wonderful things we've achieved, but it's actually the fact that all of us have experienced loss at some point and therefore grief. So um, to me, that, like, being in this, this role as pastor and, and being within, within the meal group structure, like, 
that's a huge heartbeat for me behind it and this idea of brokenness is because that's going to be the thing that we share and that unites us. And we will have moments of victory. And when we're strong, we can be strong for the people who need it. And when we have plenty, we'll have plenty for the people who need it. But um, I, I just think life experience, we're not all going to be able to say, yeah, I conquered the business world. Like that conversation for me would fall flat. I'd be like, I don't know about that. Yeah, but it'd be more so yeah, I've experienced this sort of hurt, and we go, oh, I know, I know what that's like, and let's talk about that. So um, that is the common thread between us. Um, and I want to set this up today, because we're going to talk about grief. I'm going to specifically kind of channel it towards death, because that's a big experience of mine, so I'll tell you my story in a second. Um, but if, if we grieve, there's, there's a couple of responses that we can have to grief. Um, but... How have you seen, this is an open question, so as I'm saying it, it's on the board, how have you seen people grieve, and what has been the outcome of that? So examples could be, oh, they grieved really well, and afterwards they became a more joyful person, or it was really hard for them, and they became crumudgeon-y, or, um, you know, they, they grieved okay, but their personality, like it did, it was changed a little bit after that. So just open question, how have you seen people grieve, and what was the result? Yeah. <laughs> I love that point on prayer. Yeah, so Dan is saying, and if you could, if you answer it, introduce yourself, because I'm assuming not all of you know each other in this room. So, yeah, there you go. Um, what Dan is saying is that those who have gone through it and not around it, so not skirted it, but really em- embraced what grief is for them, have come out the other side with a lot more empathy and especially awareness for those who are in that, that place themselves. Yeah, that's, that's totally true. And, yeah. Anyone else? So, so grief that leads to maturity, either I, I would say what I'm hearing is because we've lived so long that of course we can't escape it, or if we're a little bit younger, it's this, well, in, even in my younger ages, I've been faced with mortality, and then it, it just matures me because of it if I'm really embracing it. Yeah, totally true. One more, anybody? Yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll hit on this a little bit later, too, is that one of the things is, especially if it's a dramatic experience or some sort of crisis experience that we face, trauma is not the immediate thing. Trauma is the end result. And so what ends up happening is to what one person, this crisis becomes this, oh, I was able to process through that and I'm fine or I have hope, to another person is I'm carrying some sort of trauma from it or I'm carrying depression from it and not just a momentary thing. Like I was depressed um, for parts of my story, but it, it's the longer lasting effects of it. Yeah, so, so we can see, like, just framing it, there's, like, our grief, we're going to hit it. It is our common shared thing. And then within that, we all are going to process it different ways, and there's different results. And it's, and it's hard to say, like, as Christians, all of us are always going to come into grief. We're going to experience whatever the loss is. And then, of course, Christ is going to help us be the overcomers, and we're going to mature because of it. Like, that would be kind of like a goal, but it's, it's definitely not. And sometimes we have to hit around that mountain a number of times before we finally go, okay, I'm able to settle this, and it, it, we carry it for a lot longer. So today I'm going to talk about grief and death um, in particular. Others have focused on uh, just the different things. I'm going to, I'm going to kind of hone in because that's my story, um, is, is facing death in two different specific situations. Um, we grieve all sorts of situations. So a question that I want to pose right now and just be thinking about it because I'm going to actually have you answer this later. Um, but what is death? If, if we were to describe what death is, um, what is it? 
And I want you to think about that question because I don't think it's as obvious as the scientific answer would give us of just a cessation of our bodily, body's life. Um, so, so my story is, my name is Evan, and uh, I was born in 86. That's right, I just turned 32. Um, and this is my dad. So that's my dad as a kid. He was born in 54. That's my dad on his wedding day. Uh, and then that is my dad about uh, four days before he died. And Alan Robert Riedahl Jr. Um, was an amazing guy. If anybody, I don't think anybody in this room knew him. Um, I'm looking for some random head nuts. He's got so many connections because he was a mentor um, and a spiritual father to so many people um, in this city, at this church. The majority of the worship staff back in the day were mentored by him, um, the youth staff. And he was also this, like, he was such a godly man. He was so keenly prophetic. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard the term read your mail, where, like, somebody could just kind of see you and discern what's going on in life, but he had that ability and that spiritual gifting, and he would just go to the prayer center late at night, and so many people's stories of him start with, so I went to the prayer center at like 10 o'clock at night, and then your dad was there, and I met him, and then we talked and prayed for like three hours, and then that was the start of it, and then my life was changed forever, and he would be able to see you and just kind of just call out of you um, what God was doing, what God was saying, like the, the true gift of, of prophecy to encourage and exhort and correct, like he was able to function that stronger than anybody I've, I've ever personally known. Um, and it, him and my brother um, and my mom, we were an amazing classic family, two kids, a dog and a house, and he showed up at every sporting event that I ever participated in pretty much. He would leave work early and come and hang out with us. Um, his job situation changed a little bit in, in uh, high school, like I pointed out. And he, uh, he ended up staying at home, which meant that like before and after school every day for my entire high school teenage formative years, my dad was present um, at every, like I said, every sporting event, but also just coming home or if we needed something, he was there. Before I got my license, he would drive, he was the dad that would drive me and my friends to wherever we wanted to go. Like no, nobody else's parents wanted to take a bunch of kids to go see, them, see a movie and then pick them up and take them home because we're all 15 and couldn't drive. But my dad would be like, oh yeah, and we had a, an SUV. And I, I guess seatbelt laws weren't the same as they are today because it was basically how many of us wanted to go and how many can we fit in the SUV. And so everybody, like, seatbelt, 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 and then the cargo area, there was just, like, three of us, like, cramped in the back. Um, and so, and we, we traveled a lot. He got, uh, he got really into missions his last few years. There's a guy named Tom Doyle that used to be around in town, and they did a lot of short-term missions to the Middle East. So uh, Israel, Gaza, Syria, Jordan, smuggling Bibles, just like they'd come back with these amazing, miraculous stories of people getting saved. Um, Muslims having dreams and then finding them on the street market corner and then leading them to the Lord. And um, that's just how it was. And then I went off to college. He encouraged us. He always told us, the world's your playground. Go, go explore and adventure. And so I went to England right after school and uh, studied for a year in there. And he just he championed that kind of thing. And then I kind of never came home after that. I would for the summer times. But was in Greeley for a year, was in Portland for four years, graduated, was a youth pastor, um, and then one night on a Saturday night in November 27th, 2009, my phone at about 10 o'clock started ringing, 
and it was my mom, which if it's 10 o'clock in Portland, it was 11 o'clock here, and my mom goes to bed at like 9.15. So it's like, <laughs> like that, it was just this weird like, oh, why is mom calling? Uh, and I answered the phone, and it was uh, the sheriff identified himself, and this is sheriff whomever, whomever, and uh, are you in a safe place? And I was like, yeah, I'm in my room, and I just, I'm sorry to tell you this, but your dad has died. And I heard my mom in the background just wailing and just like a kind of sobbing that I've never really heard before. And I thought it was her. Like I thought like, oh, she fell down the stairs and can't walk or something like that. But uh, it was my dad and she had gone to bed before him and then he didn't come to bed and um, woke up and found him and he had died suddenly. And the world just changed that night. And um, the next morning we got I went into shock. I, I don't know if you've ever experienced shock. That was like the weirdest thing in the world, just to be kind of incompetent at everything. Uh, I couldn't book a plane flight. I couldn't figure out how to dial a phone number. Like it was just this weird moment. And uh, Karen, my wife now, is, she, we were engaged at the time. So we hopped on a plane flight at 6.30 a.m. the next morning, just not really knowing anything of what was going on and what was happening. And um, then we landed here two weeks, did the funeral. Um, he's buried over in Evergreen Cemetery, bitter cold day, um, and then went back to school, or I was, I was after school, went back to work for like two weeks, came back for Christmas, went back and wrapped stuff up for about five to six months, uh, and then moved back here. Karen graduated school in May. We got married in June. We moved back to Colorado in July, uh, and the big part of it was because I was not doing well. Um, I was... I never went to a doctor, I should have, but I'm sure I was in some deep stage of clinical depression, um, and Portland's weather doesn't help that, so um, it, the weather matched my mood pretty much every day, and it, it was getting up, I was a youth pastor at the time, so like trying to be happy with these kids, and then just carrying around this immense grief, and Karen had only met dad probably three times, um, and so she knew him, but we also had these moments where it was like, you can't totally grieve with me because you're grieving something you don't really know and nobody else here in Portland knew him. Um, so it was just hard. I, I just wasn't functioning well. I wasn't doing well. I didn't have, I just graduated so all the support systems from school and a lot of those relationships had all scattered and, and left the city. Um, so that's, that's just a brief, of course there's more details in all of it, but that's a brief part of just my experience with death as it occurs to my dad. Um, a second brush with death is my son, William, and some of you may have heard this, but he was born 39 and a half weeks, totally normal pregnancy, um, but he was emergency C-section because he stopped moving. And we measured him through the day, went to the triage. Um, sorry, the picture's not the best of the best, but you can, that's me with him on day two, and this is him on, I think, day two or three. Um, but he was... It's something called fetal maternal hemorrhaging. There's no reason that they know of, of why it happened. Um, but over the course of a few days, he had hemorrhaged about 80% of his blood. Um, and so his fetal movement has stopped because he was just so tired. Think of if you've ever given a pint of blood, that's about an eighth of the blood that you give. Um, and he had given about 80% of the blood. And so uh, hemorrhaged it back into Karen's system and... Um, so what was going to be this totally normal 
first kid experience, whatever that is. I don't know. <laughs> is there a normality in having kids? I don't know. <laughs> but um, for us, totally changed. And we, he was in the NICU for 18 days. And the first few days, they literally did not know if he was going to live or die. Um, if you meet him now, he has uh, mild, he's mild case of cerebral palsy. He's fairly high functioning. And so some people are like, oh, I didn't even know that he had cerebral palsy because he's so amazing. Uh, and that part is a miracle story of it. Um, what you won't see him doing is walking yet. He will, just not yet. Um, yeah, he's got, <laughs> if I hold his hands, you can see him stepping in the stuff and he can scoot around. Um, but there was a few days that we didn't know if he was gonna live or die. And his MRI was, it came back on day three. And they had to stabilize him. They put him in a coma for three days. Um, had to get his seizures and tremors under control, do some blood transfusions, do some other stuff to, to get him back to health, kind of stable health. And then did the MRI. And then this one night, and it was May a few years ago. It was that May that we set the record for rainfall. I don't know if you guys were all here during that May. Um, but the night that they told us the initial results of the MRI, uh, it was this crazy thunder and lightning outside, like Colorado afternoon. But it wasn't like the storm blew in and rolled over. It was that way. Like that May, it was just stormy like the entire May. And so literally the windows were like shaking with the thunder and the light. It was like Count Dracula's castle outside. And then they're telling us the most ominous news. And what it basically boiled down to was that he, his, uh, his brain stem was intact, but then the major watershed areas, all four lobes, the corpus callosum, um, all of it had pretty extensive damage because lack of blood means lack of oxygen. And so they said best case scenario um, is cerebral palsy, but we don't know and, and we're not super hopeful if he'll be able to walk, if he'll be able to talk, if he'll be able to breathe on his own or eat on his own, if his system will be able to process foods. Um, we don't know and it doesn't look good. And there's a chance that if you... Um, if we, in a couple of days from now, we're going to pull the breathing tube out to see if he's strong enough to breathe on his own. And at that moment, if he can't breathe on his own, you as a parent might have a decision that if you don't want to put the breathing tube back in, you don't have to. And just the weight of just going, what do you, so what are you telling me? Like, I have this choice of if my kid can't breathe, whether he lives or dies. And... Um, as the story goes, it, he did breathe on his own, and he kept the Lord kept on doing miracles and stirred his church to pray. And it, the story is amazing on that end. But what we were faced with in the midst of it is this idea of not only my dad but my son too. Um, within a few years of, of each other, I might be facing another death, and even more unique in that situation, it might be my choice. Like that this, this child might be so, have so much injury to his brain and his system that I don't have to try to sustain life, whatever life is. So, uh, so there's my story. Um, so I want to come back to this question. What is death? And I'm going to open it up. Having you heard my, parts of my story um, and being, being faced with death, it's, it's something that I've mulled over. So group discussion time. What's death? What is it? Uh, death is final. It is, it is what it is, yeah. And when we really have to grieve through that final separation, that final, it's this, there's no hope in coming back. It's not, oh, we, we got into a fight and there's some friction in our relationship. It's that person's gone and I can't ever interact with them again. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Um... So, 
just as, as you all, I, when, you, when you face death because of grief, because of loss, um, you, just, you just ponder it. It's just one of those things that I think because you're faced with it, you can no longer avoid it. I mean, you can. You, could, you can deny and, and be in denial and just kind of try to skirt it as much as possible. Um, but if you face it, you have to grapple with what it is. Is cessation of life? Is it a next phase? Um, in some of our counseling classes, we talk about like, like, very old age and, and death is like a, it's a stage of development where you're preparing yourself for this next stage. Uh, it's separation. It's it's this relational separation. It's finality. Um, to me, I really had to wrestle with what death was, and one of the things that helped me and awoke me to something was a reality um, that death became all of it. It was a character and a force in my story. It wasn't just a thing. Because before dad, um, particularly, and William too, this applied, death was, it was like a thing. It was an idea that was abstract and not part of my life. Because nobody had died except for my grandpa, but grandparents are supposed to die. So there's this context of like, oh, well, grandpa was old and he passed away. Well, all the grandparents have passed away, but um, that's just kind of what, it's the processing, it's that life. But when it became so much closer and so much nearer, it became this, what is this? Is it a noun? Is it this? It's no longer abstract. It's no longer far off. Now it's close and it's become personal. And what is it? And, and really, to me, it became a character. Death became this personified thing where if in my life I was looking at friends and people and ideas, death became this kind of figured character in my life. And in my story, death was present as well. And if you look at, if you start looking at a lot of narrative and literature, um, you'll actually see death become personified far more um, if you weren't being attuned to it. And, it's be and I think it's because those who experience death, you realize that there is something to this idea, this force. It's not passive, it's active. It's not distant, it's personal. It's, it's not abstract. It's, it's a character in my life now that I have to face and grapple with. Um, and I want to suggest this too, that this character in our life uh, is, is kind of the personification of the enemy of God. And that death is ungodly, because God is life. All of life flows from God. He is life. He's the creator of life. Life proceeds from who he is. And death is that separation and that abstract opposite of it becomes this character that's the antidote. And so don't confuse this with, I'm not saying that the devil and death are two different characters, but just think narratively with me, this idea of a character in our stories. Um, did you guys bring your Bibles? Is that a thing to Sunday school? Okay, pull out your Bible. <laughs> This is where we're going to get a little bit, uh, a little bit looking at the meta narrative of Scripture, um, and I want to make my point this way. So, it's, can somebody look up Genesis two fifteen through seventeen for me? You're all turning there, but you're not look. Nobody's volunteering. <laughs> Thank you, Diana. Uh, and then I need somebody to look up First Corinthians fifteen. Perfect. Thank you. Verse twenty six, and then fifty five and fifty six, and First Corinthians um, fifteen. So. Death in Genesis, this is, it's one of the characters that's first introduced. And if we have to think about it, Genesis 1 through 3 is the introduction of the entirety of, of the story. Like, the rest of the entire canon hinges on what happens and who, what characters are introduced in these first three chapters. It's man, it's God, it's creation, uh, it, it's Satan, it's the fall. Uh, and in Genesis, here we have this. Diana, could you read it loud? 
You shall surely die. So this, we've, we've heard this before, but this idea of death is introduced, Genesis 2, if you do this. Now, there's this weird thing that the, the idea of spiritual death and physical death, and the scriptures kind of lay that out, the rest of it, where Adam and Eve eat and they don't die immediately, um, but somehow death becomes, goes from far off to all of a sudden death is now a character that they're having to face. Um, so death, I would, I would argue in this context, it's, it's, a, it's a bit inferred from the text, but that, that death is the enemy and it's the first enemy as presented in Genesis. It's Satan um, along with death. So, and it's also the last enemy. Could you please read Corinthians 15? Come on. So, so Corinthians, Paul lays it out, and he picks up on this thing, and he himself, and this, this was the verse that really, when I was reading through and just kind of reflecting on my dad's death in the, in the midst of grief, was this idea of like, death is not just this thing. Death is our enemy. It's this character in our stories and some of us have experienced this character very personally, and some of us have, it's still a bit further off. But in the, in the grand story that we're in, death is a character. And it's the first character, kind of enemy, Satan, death, presented in Genesis. And then, according to Paul, it's the last character, it's the last enemy to be defeated. And if we look at the scripture story, like the story arc, it's kind of, it's, there's some beautiful imagery in it that the, the first Will be, will be the last in this idea of the, f- the first kind of enemy that we're introduced to in this idea of Satan and death is the last enemy that we're still waiting for defeat. And this being Palm Sunday, it's very, very fitting that when we look towards the resurrection and next Sunday, and death on Good Friday, resurrection next Sunday, what we're facing is an enemy. Like this idea of death, this is the enemy. And Christ rising from the dead is this idea of like, this is, he's vanquishing even this, this last enemy that we face. Um, and so there's also this idea um, picked up. Um, if Glenn can reference Harry Potter almost every other week, I can reference it once in Sunday school. So uh, Harry Potter fans, any of you? So whatever you think about the books, there are some amazing kind of Christological images within the idea. And so Harry Potter's, I'm going to ruin everything, but you've had like decades to, seriously, BK, you don't know? Oh, for shame. Is he like reading it and has never seen it or something? Okay, come on. Um, so in Harry Potter, in, in the seventh book, The Deathly Hollows, um, on, on Harry Potter's parents' gravestone, is this phrase, the last enemy to destroy it is death, which is taken directly out of Paul. Um, I have a certain sister-in-law who has, who has that as a tattoo, and then it's got the Deathly Hollow symbol above it. I'm always like, oh, you got Paul tattooed on you. And she's like, it's Harry Potter. I'm like, but it's not. <laughs> what J.K. Rowling is doing is she's picking up on this idea, because Voldemort, in, his, in the narrative, his entire, like, the highest level that he's trying to achieve is escaping death as though death is this like, most powerful thing that we can't avoid. Death and taxes, right? Like we can't, we can't get away from it. And Voldemort's goal is to continually fracture himself so many times that he can't die. But the whole point of the book is that in, even, in, even in death, it is this like, last enemy that we're, we're facing. And I, I won't totally play out, but just start playing that into what happens to Harry and the horcrux that's on him and all of that because the idea is that he gives his life to death and yet still lives 
because of the way that redemption in Christ's story works out. So, when Paul is saying this, the last enemy to be defeated is death. To me, he's identifying it as a character in the story. He's saying, in this narrative of Scripture, it's introduced in Genesis 2 in the garden, and it's the last enemy in Revelation that we're looking towards to say, after this happens, there's no more enemies. This is the first and last. BK, you can come back. Um, (laughs) So... Oh yeah, there you go. So in death and facing this character in this story, um, if it helps you guys, it might not. There's certain parts of grief that are gonna they're gonna fit for us. We're gonna try them on and go. I identify with that part of it. For me, realizing death as a character and the enemy, I'm not being faced with an idea of this passive oh just death happens, but death is a force. It's an enemy that I'm facing right now. My dad is gone from my life because of an enemy that we're facing. As Christians, we, we have a response to that, but what, what I ended up having to grieve was the death of a dad, and normal parenting was part of that too. Like what, I don't even know what normal looked like, but there's still this little pain inside my heart when I see William with kids his age, and he can't do some of what they can. And so it's, it's William's amazing. If you, if you talk to him, he's like so great. And so intellectually, relationally, he's spot on. Um, but when kids get to explore in a way that he can't explore because he can't walk yet, there's this pain of this like, ah, like, like it, it pokes at it. So I, I'm, I'm continually having to grieve that. Um, I don't know where, yeah. The idea of carrying loss, that's where we're going with this whole thing. Um, when we're faced with death, I'm gonna, Switch up my order. Oh, yeah, it's in the next slide. Great. Perfect. Um, if the loss is a crisis, it could become a trauma. I kind of hit on that earlier. The loss uh, exists as a wound. And I, and, I, and I think if I'm going to Harry Potter, I can also go to uh, Lord of the Rings, right? Like that's an okay thing. So the way that I'm looking at this enemy and then the way that it gets carried around. So if there's this idea that we're going to face death and then it's this enemy in our life, when we interact with that enemy, what's the result? How does it affect us? And how do we carry it around? Um, and I, I want to say that we carry it around as wounds. Like, if any of you have experienced some sort of loss, and especially death in some way, there is a mark on you that we can't necessarily see that you carry with you every single day. That it's just, it's there. And sometimes you forget about it, but then there's moments where you're reminded of it and it just, your heart instantly goes back into this pain of, oh, I feel that, it hurts again. And the wounds become scars and the living scars, they don't stop hurting, they just hurt in a different way. We carry them in silence and invisibility. Um, oh yeah, so, so Lord of the Rings. Any Lord of the Rings fans? Great. Um, he's at Weather- Frodo and, the, and the, the band, they're at Weathertop in, in the first movie, in the first book. Um, and the Morgul, the, so the ring race, the, uh, the Lord of the Nazgul, um, he, he's got his big nasty sword. Did I write the name of it up here? Yeah, the Morgul blade. My, I, I was thinking that's my wife writing these notes last night. I'm like, hey, what's that sword called? And she's like, oh, it's a Morgul blade. Like, <laughs> okay. She even knew how to spell it. I was super impressed. Um, and so they're up there, and, and, and Frodo puts the ring on, so he goes invisible, but the way that the ring race worked, they can still see him. And, and the ring race takes uh, the Lord of the 
the Nazgul, and he, and he stabs him in the shoulder. And you guys might remember this scene, and he just, like, he almost dies because of it. And then the elves have to come, and she rides him across the river, and the horses, and then the elves save him because they're awesome. So, uh, so that's what happens. But what ends up happening through the rest of the movie, and Frodo comments on it, and the, uh, or the Gandalf does, and the elves do and stuff, that he always is going to carry this thing. And there's actually, it doesn't really hit on in the movie, but there's this piece of the sword that's like in him, and it's moving towards his heart. And if it gets there, he's going to turn into one of these ring rays too. Like, that's there's just this idea of death has now struck him, and who these ring rays uh, symbolize, the enemy. And because of that wound on him, he carries it the rest of his life. So even though he gets healed, there's this piece of it. And I, to me, part of the strongest imagery of it is whenever the, the, those ring wraiths come close again and they, like, the little monsters cry out or that sword comes close again, his wound, he feels it again. Do you guys remember that scene? Like, they'll, just, they'll be near and he'll just go, oh, and he'll just, just kind of like, buckle over in the pain of feeling that wound. I want you to think about the wounds from grief that you have experienced and then how that wound becomes, this, it becomes enlivened again. It's a living scar is what I'm going to call it. When you're set in that situation again. So for me, uh, there's a guy downtown. He, a couple of years ago, his, his dad passed and we as the pastoral team got the call. Um, and so I went and sat with him. And most days, I, I don't just cry over my dad. Like, it's been eight, uh, almost eight and a half years now. And there was a season, for sure, where I cried almost daily. Um, but it was, it was that situation where I was put again into that arena of parents passing away. And it's, it's like, in my heart, I can feel all the feels all over again. I wasn't thinking about them for months but all of a sudden, I'm faced with that same setting that just goes, oh, like I, I carry it with me. And, and I think for, for you all, whatever, whatever that experience of death is, you're going to find situations where you come in proximity with this enemy again, this character of death. And when you, be, when you come close to him again, and, or if it's, if it's trauma, when you come close to that circumstance of trauma again, you start feeling all the feels. Um, my wife, the other day, she was at the, the OBG for just a checkup. We're pregnant with our second. And we knew when we first got pregnant, we're like, oh, we're going to feel this later. And we kept on telling each other, we're going to feel this later. But it, it's not until we're 25 weeks today that we're starting to go back into the same hospital settings and the same checkup settings. And every time we do, it's just this, okay, I, f- I feel I feel this circumstance that we were faced with all over again. And some of that's trauma, uh, and some of that's just death in general. And, and so I want to give, I don't know if it's permission or validity or just, if death is our enemy and we've been struck by his sword because of whatever the circumstance was, that is never going to go away. Like, it will heal. It will stop bleeding as an open wound, but the scar is different from other wounds because we carry it and we can, we can take ourselves back to the feels of it and the emotions of it and the weight of it and the sorrows of it. And especially, just like Frodo, when we, uh, when we get back into those situations, um, they just they get inflamed again. It's just, oh, I'm near death again. And now I am carrying the wound of this battle that we're fighting right now. Um, 
Yeah, and so one of the things, like I said, there's certain things that help all of us when we're going through grief and loss and death. And one of the things that I heard a lot, we'll, we'll be told a lot of stupid stuff, so just have grace for the people who don't know and just kind of let it, I always tell my wife, quack, quack, because it's like just water off a duck's back. Like just don't let that affect you because they didn't know, they weren't aware, whatever happened. Um, but then there's some stuff that's going to be helpful. And one of the things I heard all the time was losing somebody like your dad is like getting an amputation and then having to relearn to life with this missing limb. And it never totally made sense to me because um, I was always like, yeah, but you know, I'd been gone for a certain length of time because of college and living in Portland. And I just didn't, I didn't really ever get to that point where I was like, oh yeah, it's just like losing a limb. Because he wasn't part necessarily of everyday life. But then I had this, this idea one day that I had to take it one step further. It's like losing a limb, but to me, nobody could see it. Because these scars that are left, these wounds, after a certain amount of time, life keeps going. It keeps progressing. Every day is a new day. And so we get a few months, a few years away from whatever the instance was, and people stop remembering that you're carrying this scar around with you. Or if it really was an amputation, they stop remembering that you're an amputee, and it's just like, oh, things are totally normal. And you're like, no, this is, this is still there every day, even if I'm not realizing it every day. And it becomes an invisible amputation. Um, and, and I know this is true because, uh, especially within our worlds, just think of your friends who have lost somebody in the last few years. And if you were to go and text them or give them a hug or tell them, hey, I was just thinking about this person that you lost. Um, I'm so sorry about all that. How, how are you doing right now? And it could be three years, but it means the world to them. Because what you're doing is you're validating that there is this loss, but that nobody else sees it in normal life. And it becomes this thing of like, thank you for seeing that I'm carrying something that's invisible. I'm carrying the weight of this, or the missing of this, or whatever it is. Um, there was a couple uh, here downtown a few years ago, they lost their daughter. Um, and I, I remember going to their house after she had passed away, and it was football season because they were watching a football game. <laughs> and so I was, uh, in January, I was like, oh, has, has it been two years? Are we at the two-year mark? And they're like, oh, it was in September. I was like, oh, I'm so sorry. I just remember there being football on at your house. I didn't remember the exact date. And they said, don't, no, it's okay. I, and she started crying. She goes, I'm just, I'm just thankful that you even remembered. It's just in tears, like in the, in the church lobby. This was a, a, like a month ago. You know, or two months ago now, because it was in January, like I said. Um, <laughs> and, and it's just this thing that it becomes this. We're carrying this wound from this enemy, but it becomes largely invisible after a while um, because the, the wound isn't gushing. It's not this open sore. It becomes a scar, but it's a living scar. And it becomes an invisible amputation. Um, so I want to take a moment and... If Paul is framing this as this last enemy that shall be defeated, um, I want to take the, kind of some of the rest of our time and look up um, John eleven seventeen through thirty seven because this verse was was pretty instrumental in the way that I ended up processing a lot of this grief. Uh, and what I want you all to do is break up into groups of like two, three, four people, read it together, and then um, just the question: What do we do? Because this is when, the, the, the context is, this is when Lazarus dies. So one of Jesus' closest 
friends, not a disciple, but a friend. And um, Jesus responds in two very unique ways to, to Mary and to Martha. Um, and I just, I, I want us to, to kind of dive into that. So break up into groups of two or three, you have at least five minutes or so. Um, so just read it together and to talk about like, what are their dynamics? How did they respond? How did Jesus respond? Ready to go. All right, I'm going to bring it back in. Um, but this is group discussion time. What did you guys see in John 11, Mary, Martha, Jesus, the way he responds? What, what did, how did they respond to grief? Um, and, and framing in this that, like I said, the commonality that we share is, is, is death. It's, it's loss. It's grief. It's sorrow. Um, death is not an abstract idea. It might be for some of us still. Um, but it is an enemy. It is the first and the last enemy. Uh, and the last enemy that will be defeated is death. Um, so when it, comes, when it comes to us, this wound, this, in, this invisible amputation or this living scar, how do, what do we do with that? How do we, how do we respond to it? And how do you, what do you see out of John 17 here? Dana? Yes. People asked me when my dad died, um, were you, are you angry with with him for leaving and all that stuff. And we're at the point now where at first we were just sad because we missed him. And now we're at the point that we're sad because we feel like he's missing out on us. And it's, it's flip-flopped because our lives, there's some really wonderful things going on that he's missing out on. Um, please take that in context of to be absent from the body is present with the Lord. But, um, but the anger to me was always like, I was never angry at him. I was angry at sin. I was angry at death. I was angry that this thing existed that took my dad away. And that's not to say we can't be angry with our parents if they die. Like that is a, like we're all saying right now, that this validates that whole thing. But, but seeing like our enemy is Satan and sin and death. And that figure is who our anger is directed towards. And we hate, hate what is evil. Romans 12, hate what is evil. And that the permission to hate something like that is just like, oh, yeah, like I will, I will hate you all day. Come on. So, yeah, there's this like crazy thing. That's, that's a beautiful observation that to Martha, it becomes this like conversation of resurrection. And in John, there's the seven I am statements. There's a couple more depending on how you break them out. But um, the I am statements are huge theologically in John, because the I am is Yahweh. It's the name given to Moses at the burning bush. And so in making them, he is equating himself with the Father God. And he has this conversation in the midst of their grief and their mourning, and it's, it's her brother, of the person of Christ. And I know that you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he goes, I am the resurrection and the life. And there is this huge thing that he puts out there in that statement. Like, he, yeah, I'm going to, yeah. Anybody else? This is so good. You guys are doing great. <laughs> mm-hmm. If you want to gain life, you have to lose it. Yeah. It's this, it's, that's a, such a gospel paradox. That, I mean, Jesus has always thrown out those paradoxes, but yeah. Any other observations from John 17? Otherwise, I'm going to kind of summarize. And you guys nailed this, and I'm just going to put it into two words. Um, what John 17, our common thing is, is shared death and loss. Death is our enemy. It's a figure. It's a force. We hate this thing. 
and we carry the wounds from it, what do we do because of it? I want to suggest that what you all just said was that we grieve with hope. And we need to have permission to have both of those pieces in our life. And um, some of us, you'll, you'll run into people who, who try to skirt the grief and they're just like standing. Because it's Martha and Mary. Jesus responds to them in two drastically different ways. With Mary, he's basically lifting up her head towards this eternal horizon and saying, don't, like, don't forget about this part of it. I am the resurrection and the life. Like, like you have hope. And with Mary, he just sits there and grieves with her and weeps with her and mourns with her. And so to me, this text shows us like the absolute necessity. And Jesus, same day, same kind of setting of carrying both of those things. And they're at tensions with one another of, of there is a difference between them, but there's an imperative that we hold both of those pieces within us when we are walking in this. Um, and... I, yeah, you just run into the people who, who they, try to, they try to skirt grief and just maintain hope. And I hated those people when they were trying to comfort me. Like, I just absolutely, it was just, the, it was the worst. Because my heart at that point was bleeding. Like, it was an open wound. And they were coming with this, like, like I, we literally, I had somebody tell us, like, don't worry, your dad's dancing with the angels this Christmas. And it was just this, like, I'm not a violent person, but I could have punched him. Because it was just, this, this is not helpful right now. Like, like your, your petty like, attempts at comfort with this hope of something for dad is not what I was needing. I was needing you to weep with me. Now, it's a fine, fine line to figure out what the person needs. Um, but it's, it's one of those, like, the first step is this permission to grieve. And it's also those people where it's like, we don't grieve with despair we know that this grief leads to something. And whether it's the maturity in life because we've faced this thing, or it's this eternal hope that becomes more meaningful because it's now personalized as this enemy. Um, so I, this is an open, open question a little bit, and I just kind of hit on some of it. But how does hope change when we grieve? The idea of hope, if we're in grief, how does the idea of hope change in definition and what its meaning is for us? And how does grief change when we have hope? If we are really, I'm, I'm charging all of us to hold these things in tension when we're walking in these places, how, how do they change one another to grieve without hope or to hope without grief? But when we're faced with both of them, how do they change each other? Yeah, what you're hoping for, what you're hoping in changes because of loss. Yep, grief personalizes and adds a depth to hope. Yep. I mean, uh, hope that has no grief is, is, it is a bit of this like, oh yeah, I have all this hope, but there's none, there's none of this like valley experience of what, why am I being liberated from something? Why is the enemy being defeated? Oh yeah, the enemy's dead, but he never really attacked my country. I'm Switzerland. So like, it doesn't really matter. But, you know, for, for the, Poland, the Polish people, for the French, for, you know, all of Europe, when, when Hitler, the enemy, was actually defeated, it meant something. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Anybody else? Sorry, that example just started popping up. <laughs> like, yeah, it becomes personal, you know? Like, it's exactly what it is. And grief... In that way, we look at the father, we look at the grandfather, and they're this stable force in our life. And when they're, when they're lost, it makes us kind of turn that towards, okay, was it God the whole time? And, and Glenn will talk about his juice boss example of joy comes through the straw, but it's not the straw in the container itself, and where's the source of joy? 
um, I think grief sifts out what it truly is that we, we have hope in and hope for. Like, like grief is the thing that puts it through a furnace to say what hope is actually secure. And if it's not in this life. And it becomes this, okay, there's a hope, and this Christian hope in particular is for something more eternal than just that my dad will always be around. And I, I don't like, and it, so again, we have to hold these things in tension. Because we one day it might be the most comforting thing for us to go to the hope side of it and go like, oh man, the hope. I'm realizing this grander picture of hope that we have. But we're also holding the other hand and going, oh, but it's still, right now, it just hurts. And I'm, it just, I'm carrying the loss. And so we have to, it's, it's, a, it's a balancing act again. But our hearts, our souls will be in tension. But we as Christians in particular need to, to have in mind that we grieve with hope and we hope in the midst of our grief. Um, and don't sugarcoat it, but just, just know that that's the tension we're going to bear in our bodies. So, um, so here's a couple of observations that I have, and, and we'll be able to open this up and share it all together. Um, but if we are, as Christians, these, we carry these wounds, and as we grieve, there's this tinge of hope, and as we hope, there's this pain of grief. What are things, what are observations of how we actually do this? Uh, and the first one that I want to comment on is allowing ourselves to cry. Just God has given us a gift of tears that cleanse our souls, that flush us out. And um, there's a couple of books that I've read. And Jerry Stitzer has one called A Grace, uh, a Grace Disguised. And it's, the imagery that he uses is really beautiful. But he talks about, and I, I've personally experienced this, and so it's one of those, like, when you read it and somebody else has experienced that and then they're able to articulate it, and then you go, oh, yes, that's it. Is this idea of, of grief coming in waves. And so if you remember your science and math classes, waves, like sine, cosines, waves, um, they have intensity and frequency. And so how often are they happening and how intense are they? And in the beginning of a grief process, they're, they're going to be super intense and super frequent. And when we get to those points, um, just giving ourselves permission to say, like, it's, it's okay. I, it's not going to be like this forever, but don't, don't avoid it. Let ourselves be in that grieving system and process. And you, you're going to find yourself, or if you haven't experienced this, you'll find the other people in life. The, the wave comes and you can feel the intensity rising up in your soul. Like you can feel this wave going, ah, and this wave of grief. And if you can't release it, it starts just kind of screwing with everything else that's going on inside of us because the cleansing, we basically need to flush out the grief and tears are the way that we do that. Um, and so in scripture, place is really important. And so let the waves roll over you and find a space to cry. Find that space. And I want to give a couple of examples because sometimes we need to imagine what, what could a sacred space for grief look like? But in grief, you are going to need a space, a place, a, a time and, and an environment that allows you to safely just let that grief come forth. And so for my mom, 
um, she got a, she did it in the guest room because she didn't want like the rest of the house to always just be this like I'm just crying everywhere. <laughs> so she made her her sacred grief spot uh, guest room and she bought a new chair that was pretty comfy and a little side table and she had a journal and she would go in there at least once a day. Um, I think in the beginning it was it was morning and evening, and that was her place to cry because she still needed to work. And so sometimes she would tear up at work, but the place to let it really flush out of her was going and sitting in that chair and just saying, this is my spot to cry. Um, for me, it was, it was my bed. I lived with a bunch of roommates who were a bunch of schmucks and never, like, like, literally six months after I was with them, and not once did any of them ask how I was doing or how my family was doing. They, they, were, they were rubbish. Um, if they're listening to this podcast, there you go. Um, <laughs> but I would go into my room, and they put together like a little video slideshow uh, of pictures of my dad's life at his, for his funeral service. Um, and we posted it on YouTube. And I would just go into the room and I would, f- I would feel it. But it was that thing of like, I needed some sort of triggering force to, to let the grief release. And it, that was it for me. And I would go into my room and I would just press play on that video. And it was like 10 minutes long or something like that. And as soon as I pressed play and the pictures of dad came up, I would just just, would, I just start bawling. And intensity and frequency, at first, I would do that pretty much every single day. And every night after work, I would just go into my room carrying around this and feeling the wave coming up and rising up in me and needing to go and just press play and just weep. And as time went on, it wasn't every day. It was every other day. And then, um, then it would go on from that. And there... Just as an ad hoc, there's this random piece, too, where at a certain point in grief, it won't be grief in front of you. It'll be like sneaky grief from the side. (laughs) And something that you weren't expecting is the thing that triggers it. And that is okay, too. That if that happens from the side, wherever you're at, just to let it roll. Maybe you need to step out of the meeting. Maybe you need to pull over in your car. I remember I was driving in Portland, and there was this guy, you saw the picture, my dad went in, a, in and out of season with facial hair, like, he would just, he would go mustache, goatee, full beard, Santa beard, back up, like, he just went all over the place, but at the end of his life, he was rocking the Santa beard pretty hardcore, and there was this guy on the side of the road that was just walking, and from, it was one of those things that from the corner of my eye, I saw it, and your thoughts have to catch up to your emotions sometimes. And so the emotion went, Dad! And then the thought went, is dead. And I just started, I had to pull over in a parking lot and just cry because it was this sneaky grief. It was this like, this wasn't the time or the place. Like, what are you doing? You're not in my structure. And it's going to happen. And there's still moments where something happens where like this emotion of dad rises up in me, you know? And, And you just have to back back out from it and not like deny it like oh that's stupid but just be like oh let yourself feel again and let ourselves have tears um and the last one in those tears allowing ourselves to have permission that maybe right now is not the time and space but is it okay to wait until later and so some people are like there's there's a little bit of a, a dance with should i cry right here right now or is it okay to, to kind of, I know that in two hours I'm going to get off work and I can suppress this a little bit and I can function and work and have some normality and I'll, I'll face it then and I might 
is that denying my grief? And I just want to suggest that no, it's not. Like, there'll be moments when we need to just kind of wait on it, but make sure that we come back to it and let ourselves grieve at those points. Um, but tears cleanse the soul. They really do. They're a beautiful thing. Um, and I don't know if I included the story in this part, but, oh yeah, it's at the end. Great. Cool, sorry, I'm looking at my notes. Finding a space to cry, allowing yourself to cry. Um, the, the other example that's in the book is um, if we're asking the question, what do we do with our grief? Um, it's just this idea of facing in the night. So open question, the sun has set. So whoever it is has passed away. And that life, the sun has now set on that life. Um, and the night has come. What is the fastest way through the night? And the examples that are given are either we try to chase the sunset and whatever it was we want back and we keep trying to chase the sun again. I want that back, I want that back. Which actually ends up extending the night more than any other thing that we could possibly do. Um, another thing we could do is just kind of sit there, just camp out wherever we're at, not move a lot, and just say, all right, this will just, just happen to me. Instead of chasing the sunset, I'm just going to kind of stagnate and be right here. In which case, time heals all wounds, and so it will eventually come to pass. Um, but the fastest way through the night is to turn away from the sunset into the darkness and to go that way, because that will get us to the sunrise faster. And this, this book of Grace Disguised, um, he really just promotes this idea of when grief happens, don't run from it and try to keep chasing the sunset. And you can, but don't suggest just existing and just kind of letting grief be somewhere around, but I'm just going to try to keep living my life. Seasons of grief are very unique. And turning towards the darkness, turning towards the grief, and saying, I'm going to spend these next weeks and months and possibly years, depending on the intensity and the, the relationship that we're grieving, um, for the sake of our souls, that is the way to go through this, the, the best, the quickest. And not like the goal is to get out of it, but the goal is to face it and to learn from it, to grow from it, to mature from it. So um, and just another example of grieving with hope. Um, one of the last, there's two more things I think I have and then some, maybe some group discussion depending, but... Uh, another observation is that pain increases our capacity for delight. Loss increases our capacity for joy. Hardship increases our capacity for contentment. And if you've experienced grief and you've done it well, hopefully this is something that comes out of it. Um, imagine the waterline of your soul and on the bottom of it is all the negative feelings that we don't really think are the best things in the world to feel. And on the top of it are all the happy feelings that we're like, oh, I love joy, I love delight and contentment and all that stuff. And there's that waterline where we're just, you know, normal, normal everyday stuff. And there's this, sim there's this interconnected, interwoven relationship where and it's, a lot of times it starts with grief, which is, which is weird but true, that if we want to increase our capacity for joy and, and delight, like the stuff above that waterline, it is reliant on our increasing our, our feelings of grief and sorrow and mourning. 
Because when those, when those feelings are really embraced, what ends up doing is it increases our entire person's capacity to feel. To feel both those negative feelings as well as those happy feelings. And you can only go as high as you've gone low. And, and so we, turning towards the night and embracing those negative feelings, you are increasing your ability to embrace joy in life and to really feel it. And um, I, just a couple of personal examples. <laughs> um, for me, just talking about tears, there, there's something, and I don't want to like say if you haven't faced this, then joy is not real for you. That's not, that's not what I'm saying at all. But there's something that becomes purified about the simple things in life and joy. Uh, and so for me, that's pretty much still to this day, any movie where families are reconciled or somehow families come back together or something like that, I just cry at the end of them. Like it's just lights out, I just cry. So uh, I remember that first year, it was the end of Homeward Bound. Like you guys know that classic. And the family's all there except for Shadow, who they had left in that muddy hole because they couldn't get him out. And I remember watching this movie and thinking, like, this is so great, except somebody's missing. And knowing that in my life, like, that's my story. It's like, when my family's all together, this is great, but somebody's missing. And then that last scene, Shadow comes, like, limping over the hill, all muddy and stuff, and I'm sitting in my mom's living room just sobbing because of uh, what I'm being presented with is wholeness of a family that I was not having at that moment, but kind of rejoicing in that, like, that hope, yet while in grief, that hope of grief tension again. And I'm just sitting there sobbing at this dog walking over a hill and just being like, what's wrong with me? Why is this so happy? I don't know. And just, just bawling. And then I started cluing in because the next movie was The Parent Trap with Lindsay Lohan, which is like, Obviously, everybody's classic favorite, right? And at the end of the movie, the family gets all back together. Like, they go through their hardships and their tensions and their trials, and then they're in London, and all of the family's in the same place. And that's not, like, a tear-jerking moment, necessarily. But they're all there, and there's family wholeness, and I'm just sitting there going, ah. And if you want proof that it still happens, two weeks ago, we rented Coco, uh, the new Disney movie. Have you guys seen that one? Do what you will with the Day of the Dead. I don't, I mean, I don't really understand it, but so it was informative in that way. But look at the family themes in this movie as far as, like, remembering wholeness and family wholeness. And I got to the end of it, and this idea of family and the way that it was presented and remembering those who have come before us and, and misunderstanding and stuff like that. They, got, they all got back together, and there was that, like, joyful union again. And I was just sitting there with my wife in the basement just like, And so there's just certain things that become sweeter. Like I was commenting on this to my wife this past week where we were, we were sitting in my, my kitchen or our dining area and sunny day, we had a record on, William was playing with trains or something and we were enjoying breakfast in a French press. And there's something about that, like those, those shalom moments in life where like everything's in its place that because I've experienced these depths of everything is not okay, that when everything like is in that moment, it's just beautiful. Like there's a certain delight that my heart never fully appreciated before, but because I went to those depths where it was the grief, um, I'm like there's just something sweeter about them. And that's not to say like people who haven't experienced loss aren't 
like able to enjoy those things too. Like I'm not saying that, but there's there's a there is something to our heart's capacity that when we feel the lows, we can also delight more in the highs. Um, so I cry. I cry all the time. It's really great. And the last thing is the simpler things in life become sweeter or they're finally realized for how sweet they've been this whole time. So um, this is what we do. Death, it, it's, the, it's the common thing in us, grief is. And when we can learn to trust one another to start sharing those things, because we all carry around these wounds. Death is this figure. He is this enemy. He has struck us. We carry around this scar, this invisible amputation. We need to grieve with hope. Like, hold those things in tension. And sometimes, again, it's that fine line of, does this person need to grieve with those who are grieving, or do they need to remind her of hope? At the very least, what I'm saying is, as Christians, our grief is never in despair. It's never, dad is gone, and that's the final word. Because what Christ says is, I am the resurrection and the life. And so when we get to next week, to Easter, this is, the, this is why we're doing it during Lent, because there's this full weight of what I am grieving, it is with hope, and you will. I'm grieving, and I can say I hate you, death, because death is our enemy. And Christ, you have come, and you have defeated death, and death is the last enemy to be destroyed, and we're still waiting for that finality, but we've seen it in the resurrection of saying, this is the signpost of what is to come, the resurrection of all things, the renewal, the redemption, all of it put back into order. This is Revelation 22. Um, yeah. Yeah, great. Sorry, there's just, I have like some questions in case we had more time, but um, responding to others... These, these are just my final notes. Be aware of the invisible amputations. Grieve with those who grieve. Uh, in wisdom, be assertive. Um, I haven't actually hit on this one yet. When you're in grief, um, it's very hard to always be able to articulate, this is what I need right now. And really good-meaning people will ask you, what do you need? What can I do for you? And sometimes the answer is just, I don't know. Like, and so there's this fine line and a risk that we take to say, I'm going to just be proactive and do something for you. I'm going to bake you something. I'm going to send you a card. I'm going to drop by the house and, and give you a hug. Um, it's not that, there was, there was this one really lovely couple who came to the hospital when William was born and we were in the midst of this like, kind of crisis grief moment. Um, and it became, we didn't really know what to do with it because they just wanted to be there around us but we felt like we started having to host them. And so that's the kind of thing of like, thank you for your assertion and like you're showing me how much you care by investing and in coming here. But right now, I don't really know what to do with you. And now it feels like I have this weight of having to host you at the hospital, which that's kind of weird. Um, but then other people came to the hospital and they had this super like, hey, they would text us and say, hey, I'm in the cafeteria. Can I get you anything? And if not, don't worry. I'm just going to be here for a couple hours praying for you. And they just left it at that. And it was just this like, wow, like no expectations. They're totally in for you. But they were being assertive in that because you're not going to be able to answer the question if you're in that midst of it. Like, oh, I need exactly this right now. Uh, and as Christians, we turn to food, which is great. Like, meal trains are legit. Um, but there's other things, too. We were just talking to a couple who recently, um, it wasn't a death, but it was, it was a very traumatic experience. And we were asking them, what, what have you witnessed? And one of their responses was, well, we haven't, we've seen so many Facebook messages and text messages, but we've only received one card in the mail. And that's been kind of, like, interesting to us that, it's easy for us to shoot off a Facebook message 
but taking a little bit more time and like doing something like that and going out of the way. That's the same thing with meals. So figuring out ways that we can be assertive. Um, and if, if this is for us and for the other people. Be okay with the other person not being okay. This is how we comfort them. Um, or being strangely okay. Like that couple, again, that I went to that it was football season. Um, I remember walking to their house and literally the Broncos game was on and they had like a food platter thing spread out and their daughter had passed away just a couple days before. And they asked me as this like, as, as soon as I walked into the room, it was just this, you carry a pastoral presence and so there's this kind of like, is this, as a pastor, like, is it okay that we're watching football? And it was a legitimate question. It was one of those like, yeah, like, because grief is freaking exhausting. And there's going to be moments where you just need some sort of normality or escape or twinge of joy and entertainment and going to a movie and being okay with watching a movie without worrying, like, I'm grieving, am I okay to do this right now? Um, because I guarantee you the person in grief is not, not feeling it in that moment. They're just being distracted from it for a little bit. And for the sake of resting our souls, we need a moment to just enjoy something because our, we're so haggard, we're so tired. Um, and so being okay with them not being okay, like, like this is again, it's that wisdom of, hey, there's hope. Your dad's dancing with the angels. Like, like I, I'm not okay, and let me be not okay. We don't always have to be happy. Jesus was called a man of sorrows. And at the same time, during those moments where we're so tired of not being okay, Allowing ourselves to enjoy something, to enjoy a meal out or um, a movie or even laughing. Like enjoying laughter can be so, such a therapeutic balm just to say I'm going to do something that's like game night. Not because I feel like it, but because I know that it's, it's going to be beneficial for my tired soul. So um, these are just some personal notes on this. Um, as we wrap up this week, we head right into Good Friday. Um, and so hopefully all of you guys attend, and ladies, us, peoples, um, <laughs> attend the Good Friday service on, on Friday up at New Life North. Um, Pastor Glenn will be helping lead it. We'll all be there. It's a beautiful service, but it really is. This, like, it's this idea of the joys of Sunday will be sweeter if we experience the sorrows of Friday. And the victory over the grave means something different when we're faced with the enemy of death first and knowing what we're being liberated from and why this final victory is still there. So um, that's it. Any, any questions or closing comments? You guys, do you see this in your life? You say yes and amen. Evan, you forgot about this thing. Um, yeah, and the brevity of it all makes it so much sweeter. Like it's a treasure that we have another day. Um, and I remember... This is a weird thought. I don't know if this will mess with your theologies at all, but people talking about my dad and how everything was now perfect, like he had, he had arrived because he had, he had died, um, and thinking that even then, finally, like, like finally getting to the point of like, well, even that's not true, because even he is still waiting for something because he is separate from his body, and we were promised resurrected bodies. And this idea of my dad on the other side, and I, I would have this this vision of... This, the thin veil of death that separates me from the heavenly realms on which dad, like, so just imagine dad's right here and a thin veil of death and me, and I am in my room just sobbing 
Is it just possible that he is on the other side of this thin veil of death, also weeping with Jesus? Like, that he in the heavenly places is weeping and grieving. Now, he's grieving a loss, a loss of his family, a loss of never having grandkids on this earth. Like, he's grieving those things. He's doing it in perfection because he's present with Christ. But he is still grieving and waiting for something, even on that other side. And so there was this comfort. And I, that's why when people told me, like, it's okay because your dad's with Jesus, going, no, it's not okay for me. And guess what? I'm pretty sure it's not okay for him either because he also has to be in that place and grieve the loss. It's not as though this, this world never happened. It's this, okay, now I too am waiting on a different side of this. I am thankful to be with my Savior, but I'm going to have to grieve through missing my family. And it, it, it's just this weird paradigm that, like, theologically... I don't, I don't think scripturally I could say like, oh yeah, look, at the Bible lays that out. But personally, it was super comforting to know I'm grieving with my dad and with Jesus with a hope, but also just full on in grief. And that, that's what it is. So um, hopefully, hopefully this is helpful. Hopefully it gives us some paradigms to respond to people who are grieving or to even in our own selves, like when we're processing past or present or potentially future stuff, like know that whatever the feels are, it's okay. As illogical as your thoughts may be, they're okay. Um, you're going to think some weird things when you're in grief. and It's okay. Yeah. If, if we're sitting with somebody in grief, most of the time it's just listening. It's, it's grieving with those who are grieving. It's doing what Jesus did, and that's why I think that example is so beautiful. I, his, his perfection to be able to pivot Martha towards this eternal, like, we have hope thing, we have to be super, we have to do it in such a way where it never dismisses anything that we're feeling. But instead, the most helpful people for me were the ones who wouldn't just say, I'm sorry, but something of their countenance would also take on my grief. And so I remember going back and there was a professor from college and I was, a, I, was I had graduated six months prior, but I happened to be on campus one day because Karen was still a student, and I happened to see him, and he was like my favorite professor. And as soon as I saw him, he was 30 feet away. He slumped his shoulders, he, he kind of downcast his face, and he just, he just kind of took on, like he looked like I felt, like he took on the weight and the posture of grief. And then came and gave me this big hug, and it wasn't this like patronizing, like, I'm so sorry, um, for you kind of thing, like, he gave me a long hug. And you know those, those hugs where it's like, I'm starting this hug, but when I'm not letting go, I'm telling you that I'm here and I care and I love you and I'm sorry. And it was just him sitting with me in that grief. Like, I still remember it eight and a half years later of just going, like, I'm crushed for you. Who's crushed? And in that moment, being a Bible professor, he could have reminded me of all the joys and glories of God. But there's a moment for that. And it's not when they're crying or when they're hurting. It's when you're having a more normal situation kind of conversation. Because um, those will come too. Like we can't, like, I think the tiredness of grief requires us to move into moments of just normal conversation. Um, Easter, bringing that up, it's a good thing. But like if they're, if they're grieving, with, like if they're like taking on tears or sorrows or they're having that verbal processing of like where was God in the midst of this it's just part of it and listening and, and loving you're going to see they, they might not say it but 
there'll be more from that in that moment. And the other stuff can come later, like at a different moment. So just feel it out. Um, but we can never go wrong with just sitting with them in grief. Um, yeah, grieving with those who grieve. So, And that's some of us. I see some tears in the room because I know you're right there with me. Frodo's wound, you feel it again. The, the discussion of death and grief, bring it back around and you, you ache. Your hearts right now ache. Um, and I'm with you. I'm sorry. Um, I'm sorry for losses. I hate death. I hate death with a passion. He is my enemy. Um, and let's do it. Let's do it well. Let's look at the nighttime and just weep all the way through it. And if that's not you necessarily right now, but you know somebody who's grieved recently, who's lost something recently, don't be afraid to just insert yourself and say sorry. If it was a month ago, if it was a year ago, if it was 10 years ago, they're still carrying it around. It's part of their ethos now. It's who they are, their souls. The, the tip of the sword, the, the, has, there's a piece of it in them that will always hurt. And they might forget about it for a time, but um, you validating the invisible wound is uh, it's powerful. And it's, it's something of true friendship to say, I'm sorry it still hurts, you know. Um, they might not want to sit in it. They might be like, oh, it's okay. But it's like, in the back of their mind, they're going, thanks for saying something. I appreciate that. So uh, any other last comments or thoughts? You guys are all looking at me like, <laughs> some of you are totally in the, the, you're basking in grief right now. And some of you are like, okay, it's 1045. Let's get out of here. So. Um, let, us, let me pray for all of us as a congregation, as a whole. Um, so, Father God, we thank you for we thank you for the Son, the image of God, the perfect reflection, who when Lazarus dies, reminds us of our hope in him as the resurrection and the life, and is overcome with sorrows, and weeps with those who weep. Thank you for a God who weeps with us. Help us to weep with you and to weep with one another and knit us together as the church to Christ the head to attain maturity to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.